0: So I am a uh, very big fan of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and that may reveal to you a lot about my maturity level, I understand, but if you don't like it, all I got to say is, thou shall not pass, okay? Okay. Um, but I read it as a kid, and uh, then when my twins were old enough, I read it to them, and then we watched the movies, and I currently am reading The Hobbit with my nine-year-old son, and when my seven-year-old son is old enough, we'll read it as well. But it's just, it's just an incredible, uh, incredible story with so much adventure, so much whimsy, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of life lessons as well. But um, as we're in this series, it uh, uh, made me think of The Hobbit because it's a great example of what we talked about last week when we kicked off this series. It's a it's essentially a fairy tale. And all fairy tales they start once upon a time and then they all have similar elements to them start once upon a time and then they have interesting characters. So with The Hobbit, you've got uh, Frodo and Bilbo Bilbo and and, uh, Gandalf, the wizard. Uh, You have supernatural events. You have a ring that will make you invisible and a magical mountain that you can throw it into that will destroy it. And you have uh, uh, Gandalf always doing his wizardry things where making them disappear and doing all sorts of supernatural things. And then there's important life lessons as well. Again, a number of different morals that you can take away from the story. This is what all fairy tales have. And if you look at this list, going off of these three elements, you could be talking about fairy tales, or you could be talking about the Bible. Bible has all these things as well, doesn't it? It's got interesting characters. It's got good guys and bad guys and, and people in authority and, and uh, people from all different walks of life. It's got supernatural events, people that have been healed, miraculous healings, uh, the dead being raised, the deaf being able to hear, uh, the blind being able to see. And then, of course, it's got important life lessons. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably value on some level the teachings of Jesus. And, you know, you think that some of the lessons that come out of the church are, are, you know, important to life as well. And if you grew up in church, you know this. Every single week in Sunday school, you get construction paper out and you have to like draw out a picture of the important life lesson that you're taking away. And so, again, it's got all the traits of a fairy tale. So if you're not a Christian here today and you think the Bible is a fairy tale, we don't blame you. We actually can see why you would think that. But the big difference is, while fairy tales take place in imaginary places, the Bible happened in places that you can actually go visit. There's a land where these events took place. It didn't just happen once upon a time. It happened once upon a land and in this series we are going to the land specifically to Israel although there's accounts around the the, the Mediterranean that we see and read about in the Bible, we're going to specifically focus on Israel or Palestine. Again, those terms can be used interchangeably. But um, about a year ago, my wife and I got to take a trip with some other pastors to go see uh, Israel, and uh, it impacted us so, so greatly. And uh, I wanted to have the same kind of impact on you. And ultimately, what I it to do, my agenda these three weeks, is to make it a little more real to you. If you're a skeptic, if you're a person that's like, yeah, I think it's all fairy tale. I think it's all kind of fabricated a little bit. I want to get you to reconsider what, what might life look like or what might be important if the events in the scriptures actually happened. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, I just hope to reassure your faith in this series to make it a little more real, to encourage you in what you believe and who you followed for all of these years. And we're gonna do that by going to the land, to the specific locations where New Testament events took place. And uh, that, that matters, location matters. We mentioned this last week on a number of different reasons, uh, for a number of different reasons in a number of different ways. That if you wrote uh, an account and it supposedly took place in a certain location, you would be able to fact check that account against things that are true of that land. For instance, geography, the rivers, the streams, the mountains, bodies of water, cities, towns, historical events. There's things going on in the world at the time that should seep into that story. There's culture and there's names as well. We talked about names last week that um, if there's a certain region, there's certain names that go with that region. And and if someone's writing an account that takes place there in that location, then the names should match up as well. And here's the thing with the New Testament, it checks out in all of these areas in so many different ways. I mean, we could spend hours on end unpacking each of these and each of you would fall asleep while we did it because it gets real, real detailed and real, real granular. But again, the New Testament authors got all of this right about the land and that doesn't necessarily make it say, okay, well then everything they said is true, but it is one more step of validity towards the scriptures. And if you're gonna try to explain it away, like many people do. They say, oh, well, it was written 100 years after the time of Christ. And um, that way they could kind of fabricate the stories and make Jesus bigger than he actually was and the things that he did bigger than what he actually did. If you're gonna try to explain it that way, then you have to account for how they got all of this right. In the first century, with no internet, with no Google Maps to study, with no Uber to take them over to the land for them to see themselves, how did they get it right? And the simplest explanation is they were, they were reliably reporting events that actually happened, that they were there, or that the people they interviewed were there and experienced it firsthand. Now, last week, we went to a little town on the Northwest Shore of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. If you did not see last week, I encourage you, go back, watch it again. Today, we are going to Jerusalem and we're gonna start right here at Browns Bridge. This is a live shot. Sorry about your cars. We sold all those, obviously. The traffic's real though, that's legit. That's like anytime you take a picture, that's what 400 looks like right there. So uh, here we are at Browns Bridge. We're gonna zoom out. And we are going to go to a land not so far, far away. About a nine hour plane flight will get you to modern day Israel. We'll zoom in here. And again, a little bit of geography. This body of water is the Mediterranean, this continent is Africa. Do y'all know what this river is right here? Yeah. It's people who aren't honest about their problems, they're living in denial. No? Okay. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so you got, you got Africa down here. You got Europe up here. Uh, over there is Asia. This is deep, deep desert. Can't survive here. Water in the first century. Water travel was really, really dangerous. And so in the ancient world, if you wanted to control most of the world, you needed to control this piece of land right here. And that's the reason why this piece of land was fought over for thousands and thousands Of years. And uh, last week we were in the northern region up here around Galilee. Today we're going to go to the southern region to the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a, a, if you go there today, most of it is a modern day city. They have uh, large buildings, government buildings, condominiums, um, uh, large corporate buildings. But um, today we're gonna focus on what's known as the old city. And you'll see kind of an outline here. That is the wall that surrounds the old city of Jerusalem. And when you go past that wall, you take a step back in time. Because much of what's inside the walls in the old city of Jerusalem dates back to not just the first century, but even hundreds and hundreds of years before that. A little bit of geography here. You can't tell from this picture, but Jerusalem, specifically the old city, it sits on a hill. It sits on the top of what they would have called a mountain. And um, in the Holy Land, everything gets an upgrade. So the hills are mountains and the streams are rivers and the lakes are Seas. That's right, everything gets an upgrade. So this is uh, really a hill, but it's considered a mountain and, and the city sits on top of that. And then you have a valley right here called the, the Kidron Valley. And then on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. So when you read the scripture and you come across Mount of Olives, it's talking about this area right here. And the Kidron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed the night before he was arrested or the night that he was arrested, the night before his crucifixion. And then on the hill, up on the hill, you have the old city of Jerusalem. And today we're gonna focus right here in the center of this picture, the Temple Mount. You can see this valley right here. This is the Kidron Valley coming from the Mount of Olives toward the Temple Mount. The ancient Israelites wanted to build their temple on top of this mountain. There's a whole reason behind that that you can read and study about. But in order to build a building at the point of a mountain, they had to build a platform to hold that building. And so that platform became The Temple Mount. Now, uh, today you'll see this building right here. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, A lot of people think that the Dome of the Rock is uh, a a mosque, an Islamic mosque, but it's not. It's actually a shrine. Uh, There is a mosque on the Temple Mount that's over here to the left called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, But the Dome of the Rock is one of the most recognizable buildings in Jerusalem. And it sits right where the ancient Jewish temple sat. Another uh, important part of the Temple Mount is what's known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. We've got a picture of that right here. I actually took this picture uh, when we got to go there on our trip and, um, you will always see Jewish people praying here. Um, this was kind of a, a low attendance uh, day for them. When, when they have certain celebrations, it will be packed out with people. It'll be hard to even get up to the wall because for them, they wanna stand there at the wall and they wanna recite their prayers. They'll even write their prayers and put them on pieces of paper and put them in the cracks right there as well. And if we zoom out, you'll see why they, uh, they come here. So, Non-Muslim prayer is not allowed on top of the Temple Mount. Uh, That's part of the Israeli government's, uh, that's that's their attempts to kind of keep the peace. So this Western Wall is the closest place that Jewish people can come to where the temple used to be to pray. This is as close as they can get, which is why they always come here. And the reason why they call it the Wailing Wall is because they are wailing, they are grieving that their temple is no longer there. And we're gonna talk more about that in just a few minutes. But you can see the Dome of the Rock right here where the temple used to stood. This is as close as they can get. So again, this is kind of Jerusalem. Again, if you show up to Jerusalem, you're gonna see the Dome of the Rock from just about anywhere. That's the Mount of Olives in the background. And see all these graves right here? These are the graves of Jewish people. They believe that the Messiah is gonna return one day on top of the Mount of Olives. And when he does, they wanna be the first that are raised to life. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, they have buried their dead there. Now the Dome of the Rock, again, grandiose building. It's huge. You can see it from just about anywhere. And um, it's pretty impressive when you see it in person modern day. But to think back 2000 years to the temple that once stood there, the temple was actually two times the height Of the dome of the rock. And so, for people in the first century, they would have um, been approaching Jerusalem, and this would have been the image that they would have seen the ancient uh, Jewish temple. And they would have never seen anything like this building in their lives. In the ancient world, it just would have been captivating, it would have been breathtaking, Um, it would have been truly, truly impactful. And this was kind of the centerpiece and the center place of the Jewish faith in the first century. And it's here that we're going to look into an account today. Jesus is with his disciples. They're at the Temple Mount. They're they're leaving the Temple Mount, probably crossing the Kidron Valley and heading, heading towards the Mount of Olives because the conversation continues over on the Mount of Olives. And at some point on that journey, some point as they're leaving the temple, His disciples said this. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, and again, three of the four gospel authors record this interaction with Jesus. Specifically, we're looking at Mark today. So Mark documents this. He says that one of the disciples says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Again, they were impressive even though, the, even though these disciples had visited them every year for, for decades, they still just, they're leaving the Temple Mount and they're going, oh, this is just so beautiful. It's just so amazing. Jesus, do you see these buildings? They're just, they're, they're unreal. Look at these. And Jesus responds, he says, do you see all these great buildings? And then he's about to snatch them from their little fairy tale state. He says, not one, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So on one hand was not even possible. Like how could you tear something down that is this large, that is this massive? But there was also a, a very offensive component to this as well, again, because this was the centerpiece and the center place of Jewish worship. So his Jewish followers in that moment would have been taken back, blown away, confused, offended. What was Jesus talking about in that moment? In order to understand it, I need to uh, back up a little bit and talk about an idea that all of us can relate to in some way, shape, or form today. Specifically, if you've got kids, you can relate to this. Um, Behavior management. Um, So all of us grew up with some form of behavior management. I grew up in church. I was actually a pastor's kid and the specific branch of church that I kind of grew up in had a kind of a way of here's how you should behave. Here's how you should act. And it, it sounded or it looked something like this, that you don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls that do. I don't know what your version was, but ours was something like that. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you had some sort of uh, behavior management standard that your parents set for you. And as we grow into adulthood, maybe, maybe we let go of our child standards and we take on a different standard, but we really never fully let go of the idea of behavior management. And when we were kids and we messed up, we knew we had messed up and we were like, okay, we gotta do something to make it right. Typically it was with our parents. And so we find some way to schmooze or some way to make, you know, make us get on their good side again. As we're adults, it looks a little different. Because often we ask bigger questions than just trying to, and we, we, we're not having to worry about what our parents think of us. We, we begin to think, okay, it, it, you know, when we mess up in life, whatever standard we have, we begin to ask the question, am I okay with God? I mess up in life, are, are me and God on good terms? And again, you don't have to be a person of faith or a church person to think this or to feel this. We, we all have some level of behavior management, some standard of it that we want to live up to. And every one of us has fallen short of it. It doesn't matter how low you set the bar. Every time you talk to someone, you get to know them, you get to know them long enough, you hear enough of their story, you're gonna see someplace where they didn't live up to their own standard. And when we don't live up to that standard, it creates a gap for us. It creates a question mark for us, a pause where we go, hmm, I wonder if everything's okay. I wonder if I'm all right. And again, if we think about God, think about faith, we begin to ask, am I all right with God? And again, this is common to humankind. As long as humans have been around, they've been thinking through this and they've been trying to find ways to make themselves all right with this higher power. For um, Jews in the first century, this is where they made things right, right here. They had no shortage of rules. A lot of times we think, oh, they had the 10 commandments. They actually had over 600 commandments in the Old Testament that they had to follow. So even the best of the best were falling short in a number of different ways. And the way they closed the gap, the way they answered the question of, am I all right, was right here at the temple. Through sacrifices and offerings that were spelled out for them in the law. Okay, if you mess up, here's what you go do. And they would go to the temple and they would do the sacrifice or the offering and it would make them right again. The, The temple was also where celebrations took place. It's where ceremonies took place. They would travel multiple times a year from wherever they were throughout Palestine. They would travel to Jerusalem. And ultimately this is where they believed the presence of God was as well. So when Jesus out of the blue says, hey, I got bad news for you. It's gonna be destroyed. It it won't be stacked up and and constructed. It's gonna be thrown down. Every single stone will be thrown down. But he wasn't just telling them bad news. He was ultimately gonna share with them good news too. There was more going on here. In the gospel of John, uh, he uh, documents this one time when Jesus shows up to the temple, this is early on in his ministry, and people outside the, uh, the, the temple walls, some, somewhere in the courts here, they're selling and uh, they're trading money and they're, they're selling doves and animals and, and they're doing it in a way that's preventing people from being able to connect with God. That's essentially what was going on. So Jesus starts flipping tables over. You may remember this story at some point. You've, you've read it or you heard about it in a Sunday school class, but it was the most angry Jesus ever got. And John documents that that the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, they came to him. They said, well, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do this? Who, Who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple. Again, this is another instance of Jesus bringing up the temple and in a way, it seems like he's throwing shade at the temple. He's doing something more than that. They replied, they said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it? In three days. And then the gospel writer John here, he, he kind of steps out of the dialogue and he narrates what's going on here. And again, this is him writing it years and years, probably decades later, as he looks back on this interaction. This is after Jesus' death and his resurrection. John says, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. John is somehow making a connection, or he's saying that Jesus was making a connection between the temple. In his body, Jesus, how can you do this? In that moment, they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. It was only after the resurrection that they began to understand what Jesus was talking about. And I wanna, I wanna take just a second in, and look at two scriptures that are gonna help us unpack what Jesus was talking about when he's bringing up the temple and bringing up his body. One, one scripture was directed specifically to Jewish people in the first century, and one was directed at Gentiles, in the first century. I wanna take just a second and look at these. The Gospel writer John, when he describes John the Baptist baptizing out in the desert, he's preparing the way for Jesus in his ministry. All of a sudden, Jesus walks up. You know what John says the first time he lays eyes on Jesus when he's standing in that river? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the people that were standing there listening to this, this would have been a mostly Jewish audience. And so when John the Baptist said that, again, it may not mean much to us and our current culture, where we live, where we're from, what we've experienced, but to Jews in the first century, they would have known this is a specific reference to the Passover lamb. Every year at Passover, every family was required to come to Jerusalem. They would bring a lamb for their family. When they got there and they got settled with wherever they were gonna stay for the the Passover celebration, the dad would walk the lamb up to the temple mount, up to the temple and take it to the priest where they would sacrifice the lamb for the sins of the family. Then he would take the sacrifice lamb back to his family. They would cook it. And that's what they would eat for their Seder dinner. The lamb took the sins on itself, was sacrificed at the temple by the high priest. John is saying, hey, Jesus, he's the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just the sin of the family, not just the sin of a few people, but Jesus is going to be the sacrifice once and for all, for all people. And you fast forward to his death and his resurrection. You think about what happened in the life of Jesus. Who was the one who turned him over to be crucified? The high priest, right? And where did he do that? The temple. And what holiday were they celebrating that weekend in Jerusalem? Passover. So Jesus being the lamb of God has so much context when you look at it through that first century Jewish lens. But this is stated another way by the apostle Paul. And he was writing to a non-Jewish audience. He was writing to a a Gentile audience in Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. And he was trying to sum up, this is years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's trying to sum up what Jesus did for the world. And this is how he phrases it. He says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, to take our sin on himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel summed up. Jesus was sinless, but he took our sin on himself and was sacrificed on our behalf so that we can take on his righteousness. We get forgiven, but not just forgiven. We don't just get the slate wiped clean. We actually get to participate in Jesus' righteousness, his right living. This is good news. This is gracious news. And it's a gift. All we can do is receive it. And when we receive it, our sin no longer defines us. His righteousness does. When we receive it, we no longer have to worry about how we're doing on the behavior management front because Jesus took care of that once and for all. So going back to this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, they're leaving the temple mount and they're oohing and on over the buildings. And Jesus says, I got bad news for you. Not one stone. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus says, that's the bad news. The temple's going away but don't worry because there's good news as well. I am going to replace the temple. Jesus said he was going to replace the temple. No longer would sacrifices and offerings have to be made on our behalf over and over again. Now through Jesus and through his death and his resurrection, he's the final sacrifice. Once And for all. And from now on, our peace with God, it comes through Him. Our right standing with God, it comes through Him. Our question of, you know, I haven't behaved well, so are we okay? It's a resounding yes in Him. Jesus became our connecting point with God, just like the temple was in the first century for the Jewish people. But with Jesus, it's even better news because it's available to everyone. The Jewish temple was limited to the Jewish people. In fact, if you were a Gentile and and you went up to the temple mount, there was certain places you couldn't go. You were kind of kept on the outside looking in. You didn't get invited to participate. Jesus said, no, everyone's invited to participate in the forgiveness that I'm going to offer in the right standing that I'm gonna offer. And guess what? You don't have to travel to Jerusalem to experience it. The invitation is to everyone and the invitation is to experience him anywhere. It's no longer centralized in a location, but rather it is centralized in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus makes this prediction. No stone's gonna be left on another. Every one of them's gonna be thrown down. This was around AD 30. And about 30 years later in the mid 60s AD, the Jewish people revolt against the Roman empire. And the Roman empire sends um, uh, multiple forces of their army down through Palestine to essentially squash this revolt. And they start in the north and they start destroying all these little towns and their villages. And they work their way south bit by bit. And by the year 70, they come to Jerusalem and they conquer Jerusalem. And do you know what they did to the temple? They destroyed it. And do you know what they did with the stones that created the temple? Every one of them was thrown down. They pushed them all off the temple mount. And in that moment, Jesus' prediction from 30 years earlier comes true. And all the Jewish people and the Christians that were living in Jerusalem that had, uh, most of them were Jewish and they began to follow Jesus. They were scattered from the land. But the church had already started. By this point, there was churches all around the Mediterranean that were sharing this good news about Jesus and what he had done, and what he had come to establish and how forgiveness was available to all and life with God was available to all in his name and through his death and his resurrection. The church was already growing and it continued to grow by some miracle in the Roman empire where everything was set against it. People kept sharing these words, these documents of what Jesus said were were passed around and shared. And then eventually it became part of our Bible. And the church continued to grow and spread. And in modern years, there are billions of Christians. There's billions of Christians around the world that have read these words right here. And over the course of 2,000 years since Jesus said it, and since it became true, billions of people have read these words as well. And then in the mid-1990s, about 30 years ago, not once upon a time, and not in a land far, far away, but in a land not too far away, they were doing some excavations around the Temple Mount. And their excavations revealed this. These are the stones that formed Herod's temple in the first century. The Jewish place of worship in the first century. And this next view may help you a little bit. It's in the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. That's the very southwest corner of the Temple Mount. You see an archway right here. This has since fallen apart. There used to be stairs that go up here. And then as you zoom down, you see this pile of stones right here. The ground level for thousands of years was all the way up here. In fact, um, when we were there, our Israeli guide who grew up in Jerusalem Uh, He said he remembered as a kid, his dad, when they would come to the temple mount, his dad would sit him on top of that stone right there. We were standing down here on the ground level and he's pointing up at that stone going, when I was a kid, my dad used to sit me on top of that. And that was 35, 40 years ago. The ground was right here. So all the while, as people walked this land, little did they know that the remnants, the leftovers of the Jewish temple were below them. And again, it wasn't until the 1990s that these stones were revealed. Now, why do I show you this today? Why does it it matter? What I want you to remember in this. What I want you to remember is that there are stones piled up in Jerusalem that you can go see today that are a reminder that behavior management is no longer the way we get to God. It's no longer the way we please God. It's no longer the way we connect with God. This is a reminder that Jesus not only predicted this, but then he took care of it. He replaced the temple once and for all. He took our place. He took our place on the cross. And now we follow not to earn his love, not to earn God's graces in our lives, but we follow him because We believe that he has the words of life. We follow him not just to manage our behavior so that we can be a good little boy or a good little girl and people can think highly of us or maybe that God would think highly of us, but no, we follow because we believe his way really is the way of life. So we still manage behavior. That's always gonna be a part of our lives. But we don't do it to earn good standing with God. We know that he delights in us because of his son, Jesus. He's not keeping score. These stones are a reminder of that. Oftentimes we can think that God's up there keeping a tally of, okay, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the good, here's the bad. No, he surrendered this scorecard, which means that we can too. Each of us has our own little mental scorecard of how good are we doing? Are we, you know, keeping it, you know, in between the rails, we heading in a good direction. We don't have to live with that weight the weight of, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Is God happy with me? Jesus took care of all of that. He closed the gap between our lack of behavior management and his standard and what he sees of us. We no longer have a question mark. And once upon a land, he predicted that he would do it. He said that not one stone will be left on another. And okay, to be fair, I realized that these stones are stacked, you know, kind of piled up on top of one another. each other. You're, You're being a little bit literal. What he meant was they're not gonna be constructed any longer. They're not gonna be in this perfect format that Herod created. And they're all gonna be thrown down. And you can see the top of the temple where Roman soldiers were just pushing these stones off the side one by one by one, piling them up at the base of the Temple Mount. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that Jesus changed everything when he came along through his death and his resurrection. And the next time you're questioning if you've been good enough, the next time you're feeling yourself kind of falling into, "Uh uh-oh, my behavior management hasn't been great and you're wondering where you stand with God, I want you to remember this pile of stones right here. And know that God is for you, that he sent his son for you, and that he's your heavenly father who loves you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words that have been preserved for uh, 2,000 years. Words that your son Jesus spoke to his disciples that could have just as easily been forgotten and not documented, and lost to history. But thank you that we get to peer into it today and that um, even more so we get to see the physical fulfillment of what Jesus said. And God, even more than that, what it means for us as followers of you, that we don't have to scramble and strive to make ourselves right with you anymore. We can trust you. We can trust you. We can trust you, Jesus, your death and your resurrection as ultimately managing our behavior once and for all. Help us follow you with our lives, not to earn your favor or your love, but help us follow you because you alone have the words of life. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.